Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30 is where we're going to be this morning. Philippians 2, 19 to 30. You'll have to bear with me. Uh, it, it turns out taking facefuls of pollen in at all times leaves your voice a little bit weak, so I'll be depending on water a lot this morning, so just bear with me in that. We're also going to be continuing our study through Philippians as an emphasis that this day is, like every Sunday, a celebration of the resurrection of Christ. We're going to continue in what we've been doing every day until now. <clears throat> when I was a kid, my parents uh, were always concerned with the company that I kept. When I would go, it didn't matter, to a youth event or to, to a, a church event or any, anything. Every time I would, I would get back, I would get the third degree. Who were you with? What was their name? I, I don't know that person. What's their parents' names? What'd y'all do? What'd y'all talk about? What'd you say? What do they look like? Who are they? Do I know them? Did I recognize them? Do I, have I ever seen them before? And my response was always the same. Mom, right, after a while, you're like, I can't take it anymore. My parents were always concerned with the company I kept. I always heard from time to time all of these maxims. You are the company you keep. I'm sure you've heard that one before. Lay down with dogs. Wake up with fleas. You've heard that one too. I can tell you had, were my parents also your parents? Uh, countless maxims I got all the time about the company that I kept. The people in our lives, what my parents understood really, is that the people in our lives certainly have a great measure of influence on what we do as people. They have influence over us. Often our behavior is set by their own pattern of behavior, by the things that they do. We, we start to emulate the people that we're around, those closest to us, the people that we admire, the people that we consider friends, the ones that we want to be like. Paul is writing his letter to the church at Philippi, a church that he planted some ten years before. And his concern in this letter, as we've seen, is that the people of Philippi live their lives in a Christ-centered way. And now he's beginning to transition in the letter to give them people that they need to look to, people that they need to emulate, people that they need to pattern their life after. He's concerned with the people that have influence over the church, people that might be able to persuade other people to follow after them. He'll even tell the Philippians in the passage that we'll talk about next week, look out for dogs. He doesn't say the wake up with fleas part, but it may be in the Greek somewhere. I don't know. To whom are the Philippians looking to set their pattern for their way of living? Now, it may not seem like that's what he's doing. Because when you look at the passage that we're in today, it doesn't, to be honest, feel very Eastery. It looks like a travel log. It looks like he's just giving the Philippians his plans for the future. But indeed, it's not. He's actually encouraging them to emulate the lives of the people that he's sending to them. 
doesn't seem like that at first, but if you go all the way to chapter 3, verse 17, look at chapter 3, verse 17, that's just past our passage this morning. You'll see what Paul is going to say there as a summary for all the things that he's beginning to talk about even now in our passage this morning. Look at what he says. Brothers, join in imitating me. Well, there's a challenge to tell that to somebody. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. So he's giving them a slew of people that they're to look to. These are the people that you're to emulate. These are the people that you're to surround yourself with. These are the people that should have the greatest amount of influence on your life. And so this morning, he's going to use the example of two people that are closest to him that he's going to be sending to Philippi. Timothy and Epaphroditus. Before we talk about who these men are, let's read the passage this morning. Philippians 2, 19-30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that, you, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that, I shortly, that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We pray that this time would be a time where we can treasure it and revere it. And would you show us through your spirit the meaning of this text that's in front of us and its implication on our lives. Would you help us to see it in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? <coughs> Would you help us to be changed because of it? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled this sermon series, The Christ-Centered Life, because throughout the book of Philippians, Paul is really challenging the church at Philippi to center their lives on the good news of Jesus Christ. It's to be at the center of everything that they think and do. He tells the Philippians that he wants them to be com complete. He wants them to be blameless in the day of Christ. That is when Jesus Christ returns. He wants them to be ready. He tells them that God has begun a good work in them and He's going to bring it to completion. So God is at the center of everything that He's bringing about in their lives. He's the one working in their lives to bring all of this to completion. And then in the meantime, he wants them to abound in love for one another. The same kind of love that Christ has shown them. 
He wants them to bear the fruit of righteousness that only comes through knowing Jesus Christ. He rejoices that the gospel of Christ has advanced. And it's advanced at his own expense at times. Remember, Paul is writing this from a prison cell. So at the very least, the gospel has advanced at the expense of his own freedom. He knows the cost of sharing the gospel. He's experiencing it. And people, while they're preaching the gospel, Paul says in verse 17, they're often preaching it to afflict him while he's in prison. So they're doing it at the expense of his own name. It's come at the expense of his freedom. It's come at the expense of his own name. And still he rejoices that the gospel is advancing. Because Christ is to be at the center of his life. In fact, he says his very identity has been taken over by Christ when he says, for to me to live is Christ. It's no different. Whether I'm alive or whether I'm dead, I am Christ. I belong to him and I'll do whatever he says. Eventually, he tells them in chapter 1, verse 27, to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Meaning that's the, that's the center, that's the purpose of their entire life is that their life would be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Meaning they're to be united, they're united in doctrine, they're un, united in mission, and they're unafraid of the opposition that might stand in their way, in the way of the kingdom, in the way of the gospel. A manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ sees the whole church one together, united, standing side by side, striving for the gospel. Now remember, in this chapter, in chapter 2, starting in verse 5, Paul has already drawn their attention to one individual that's at the center of their life that they should begin emulating, and that is Christ himself. Look at Philippians 2, verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the way, that he says, to become Christ-centered. It's to, it's to actually emulate the person and work of Christ. He wants them to emulate Jesus as he marched humbly to the cross. Though he was equal to God, he didn't count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. And he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross, he says. This is to be your mindset. You're to have that very same mindset as you consider others' needs ahead of your own. This is how to be Christ-centered, is to emulate Christ. And all of that is so that their life may be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So to live their life that way, first they have to emulate Christ. And as part of that, he says, they have to live out their faith with fear and trembling. In other words, they have to exercise it. They have to put into practice all of the things that they say they believe. Doing all things without grumbling or complaining, as Jeremy preached so well last week. Now Paul tells the Philippians that he's sending them two men who are at his right hand. Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now about Timothy, he tells them in verse 20 that Timothy will be genuinely concerned for their welfare. And then he says about Epaphroditus that he nearly died for the work of Christ. That's how seriously these men take their calling. Epaphroditus nearly dying and Timothy being 
greatest concern for their welfare. Paul's commending these men to the Philippians, not just for emulation, but he says in verse 29, for honor, honor such men. So in a few passages, when Paul tells the Philippians to keep their eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us, Timothy and Epaphroditus are included in the us. That's who he's talking about. That's who he's telling the Philippians. Emulate these men. Set your eyes on these kinds of people that walk according to the pattern that you have seen in us. Within about 20 verses or so, Paul is telling the Philippians to honor, to imitate, to keep their eyes on, to emulate people like this. Now, Paul's main concern for the Philippians in our passage this morning is that they would emulate those who have, the, who have gospel-centered concern for others. That's his main concern right now, is that they would emulate those who have gospel-centered concern for others. If we had a screen, those words would appear on the screen. Emulate those who have gospel-centered concern for others. It's no secret that Paul highly values Timothy. If you've read through any of Paul's letters, you can see very plainly he reveres Timothy. He thinks of him as his own child. He even addresses him as his own child in two letters that he writes to him, 1st and 2nd Timothy. We have another reference in 1st Corinthians where he says, that, that is why I sent you Timothy. That's what he tells the Corinthian church. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them in everywhere in every church. It's abundantly clear in many of Paul's writings that he sees Timothy as his own son. And we know Timothy had a grandmother who was a Christian named Lois and a Christian mother named Eunice. But it appears as though Timothy had a Greek father who was probably not a Christian, might have even died when Timothy was little. And so it's apparent that Paul fulfilled that role to him as a Christian fatherly figure. So when Paul says in verse 20 that he has no one like him, he doesn't mean that the rest of the guys around him are dirtbags or they're of no use whatsoever. Obviously, he's about to mention another guy who's right around him, Epaphroditus who's also important. He travels also frequently throughout his letters with Luke and with Silas and with Barnabas, to name a few. What he means to say about Timothy in having no one like him is what he says in verse 22, how as a son with a, as a, with a father he has served me. See, Timothy is not only Paul's protege, but he has what Paul calls a proven worth, which he has demonstrated in the way he has served with Paul in gospel ministry. In other words, Timothy is not only a good kid who has tended to the needs of Paul, but he is, he's been a minister of the gospel on Paul's missionary journeys. And he has proven himself that he can stand up against the opposition that would come back on him as he preaches the gospel. He doesn't cower in the face of persecution. And so what we find out about Timothy throughout the New Testament is that, he go, that Timothy is sent by Paul to Corinth, to Thessalonica, to Ephesus, and now to Philippi. And in each place, Timothy has gone to the church for the same reason. 
to genuinely care for the people of God. Timothy is a pastor of pastors. That's what Paul says in verse 20. Look at it again. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. See, Paul first is genuinely concerned for the welfare of the Philippians. And for their welfare, he has no one better than to send to them Timothy. He's sending Timothy because of his great concern for the church at Philippi and for all churches. But understand that Timothy is not going to the church at Philippi to organize their social calendar and to make sure that they meet budget every year. He's sent to them to genuinely care for them. But don't we have to ask, what does Paul mean when he says genuinely care? That's important. Well, look at what he says in verse 21 and 22. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me with the gospel. There are other pastors out there, and they're going around making their rounds as Paul is in prison. I think these are the people that he's referring to. They all serve their own interests. I think he mentions them back in chapter 1, verse 17. Look back there with me. He says, The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. seems that, that Paul's concern for the church at Philippi, first and foremost, is a gospel concern. There are people whose foremost concern is their own self-interest and they're making their rounds in Paul's absence to the church and the, and the ch- churches abroad and they're proclaiming a kind of gospel. But all of it is designed to promote their own ego, promote their own name, their own brand, so to speak. Their interest comes at Paul's expense as well. But notice that Paul and Timothy's concern is not primarily for the people at Philippi either. Wouldn't you think that would be what he would say? Look, these other preachers out here, they're concerned about their own interests. But Timothy is concerned first and foremost about you. That's not what he says. They're concerned about their own interests. But it seems that Timothy's concern is the concerns of Jesus Christ. See, what Paul is saying about himself, he's already told us, and also now about Timothy, that his main concern, his driving force, is the concern of Christ. In other words, Timothy is living his life in a Christ-centered way. That's the reason he fears no opposition. He has a proven worth in sharing the gospel. He has served at Paul's right hand, and he has proven time and again that he is fearless in the face of opposition. He goes to church after church proclaiming the same message of the resurrection of Christ because his life is Christ-centered. He's being sent to Philippi to give to them a model to emulate. A model of someone who's gospel-centered in his concern so that what they emulate is gospel-centeredness. Gospel-centeredness, not self-interest. How does Timothy do that? How does he go in and emulate Christ-centeredness before the congregation at Philippi? Well, if his activity in any and all the other churches is any indication, in Corinth, Timothy, he, Paul tells us, reminded them by way of teaching how to follow Christ 
as they had seen Paul do. That was his job in Corinth, to remind them of those things. Paul calls that, what Timothy does in Corinth, the work of the Lord. In Thessalonica, he is called God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. And Paul tells us that he is sent to establish and exhort you in your faith to the Thessalonians. In Ephesus, he tells us that he is sent to charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine, and he tells us that he's doing this by preaching the word, reproving, rebuking, and exhorting with complete patience and teaching. How does Timothy give to them Christ-centeredness? By giving to them the word of God. By standing in front of them and telling them what is in the Scriptures and why they should live their lives in accordance with it. Timothy is to place the concerns of Christ in front of the church by reminding them of what God's Word tells them. Paul wants Timothy there so that the church has someone to hear from and to emulate who will not be self-centered in his interests, but will be Christ-centered. And the only thing that's going to keep him Christ-centered is if he continues giving the word to the people, as Paul tells him to do for the Ephesians. And by emulating Timothy then, what will they do? Keep Christ at the very center of their lives. I think this is an important concept for us as a church to grasp for us as individuals to grasp. Sometimes I think we have a hard time understanding what genuine care really is. What genuine love really looks like and feels like. And here's what I want you to, to grasp. Those near you who are the most concerned about your relationship to Jesus are the ones who genuinely care for you. You understand that? Those near you who are genuinely concerned about your relationship to Jesus are the ones who actually care for you. In verse 20, Paul, tells, Paul says Timothy will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. But in 21, he says that Timothy seeks the interest of Jesus Christ first and foremost as opposed to the other kinds of preachers. So, in other words, his genuine concern for the Philippians is that they follow Christ by lashing their hearts to the ancient mast of the gospel, tying themselves down so that they would never leave. But if we're honest, and let's just be really, really honest and transparent right now, sometimes the people that are super Christians in our lives, drive us nuts. Honest, for just being really honest, sometimes the people that are super Christian drive us nuts. They've always got a Bible verse for everything that we're going through. They always want to pray. Sometimes they even point out our sinful attitude in the matter, don't they? And sometimes we really don't want that. And if we're being extra super honest, I mean, this is a level of honesty we may never have gotten to before, but here it is. 
sometimes the people around us that encourage us to grumble and complain, or that just sit there while we vent, or while we gossip, or while we slander, and get on our side and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you should be mad. That would make me mad too. The people that have no boundaries in their humor, the people that make us feel righteous in our anger, the people that don't judge us in whatever sin we choose to partake in, these are kind of the friends that are really easy to run with. They're a joy to be around because they never tell us no. They never push back against us. And it's always comfortable. The conversations are always easy because they just flow right with us regardless of what we do. And sometimes we feel like, you know what? They get me. And then in the morning, we wake up with fleas. And we wonder why. In truth, those people have absolutely no concern for your eternity. Zero. No concern for your eternity. The only thing they care about is indulgence and hedonism. And your participation with them in it only makes them feel better about their own slander, about their own anger, about their own gossip, about their own lust. Because misery loves company. And if you wake up tomorrow in judgment before God Himself and your soul is required of you that day, it's no skin off their nose. They don't care. You see, the people that love you most are the ones that will point you to Jesus. They will tell you hard and uncomfortable truths. That the very thought that you wouldn't be with them for eternity, breaks their heart. They don't even want to think about it. And believe it or not, they're God's gift to you. These are the people that don't always tell you what you want to hear. They tell you what you need to hear. Even if they risk ruining the friendship, or maybe even ruining the, the bonds of family. Paul transitions to Epaphroditus. He was a member of the, the church at Philippi. And we don't know much about him. But what we do know about him in this passage, to me, is, is unbelievable. We do know that he is a member of the Philippian church. And... and he was sent by the church at Philippi to express their care for Paul. And when they send Paul these gifts, they send them through the courier, Epaphroditus. And apparently, his task was not only to just carry these parcels to Paul, give them to him, and supply his needs, but also stay there and minister to him while he's in prison. But somewhere along the way, he became ill and nearly died. I want you to just pause for a second and just think about the significance of what Paul is telling us Epaphroditus did. 
The church at Philippi wanted to send somebody who was in prison some items. And they wanted to send them him someone that would take care of his needs. And they said, Epaphroditus, we would love you for you to pick up all the things that you own and take them to where Paul is imprisoned and just minister to his needs and give him the things that we have for him. And Epaphroditus said, okay, and ran to where Paul was. Can you imagine that? Somebody just telling you, hey, you look like you could do it. Just pick up your things and, and move to where Paul is and stay for an undisclosed amount of time to just minister to his needs. And Epaphroditus says, yes, sir. And on the way, he gets ill and nearly dies. But eventually God heals him, and Paul is now sending him back. Now notice in verse 26 that Epaphroditus, what is his main concern? His concern is not for his own illness, or that he didn't complete the task. His concern is for the Philippians who were concerned about him. It says in verse 26, For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed, because you heard that he was ill. His concern is still not for himself. His concern is for the church at Philippi who is worried that he was nearly dead. I mean, we would still be offering prayer requests for the illness that we got healed from two months ago. And here Epaphroditus is worried about their worry for him. Paul sending him back to the Philippians and in spite of his failure to complete the mission, really, that he was sent for. In verse 29, Paul tells the Philippians to receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor. And he says, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ. It's, it's actually not difficult. If you really look around, you survey your friends, you talk to people, it's really not difficult to find someone who holds his life Loosely. You'll find many people who hold their life loosely. That means that they're willing to, to risk it all. And sometimes we're tempted to emulate those people, aren't we? When we see somebody who kind of holds their life loosely, man, I wish I could live like that. I wish I could live on the edge like that. He doesn't seem to care about anything. But not all people do it for the same reasons. Some hold their lives loosely because they say, YOLO, you only live once. That's what YOLO means. You only live once. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the biblical version of YOLO. These hold their lives loosely because they assume that this is the only life you get. You might as well get the most of it. Soak in all you can. Grab it while the getting's good. These are hedonists. Their aim is to gratify the flesh at every single turn. And the more they can get to join them, the merrier they are. There are others who hold their lives loosely for different reasons. Because they feel like by doing so, there is some reward that awaits them. It causes them, maybe some, in some cases, to fly into buildings or to take their own lives with countless others around them. Because they believe that by doing so, the reward is great for them. 
But these are fools because they think that God will be impressed by their zeal. But you see, Sunday morning is special. Because on Sunday, every Sunday, and especially this Sunday, Christians the world over celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The eternal Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a perfect and sinless life. And instead of taking the rewards that He was rightfully due for His perfection, He went to the cross to suffer the punishment of God on my behalf. But on Sunday, he got up from the grave and he walked out bodily. Much to the surprise and to some of the chagrin. So there's another group who hold their lives loosely and for an entirely different reason. It's the ones who follow after Christ. They also live their lives and hold them loosely. Not like the hedonists. Why? Because when they see the resurrection, what they understand then is that there is life after death. There's life on the other side of death. So that tells us what we have now is not our only life. It's not YOLO. It's YOLT. Guess you only live twice. In other words, when we die, we don't just become worm food, as the atheist would have you believe, as the hedonist would have you believe, as the drunkard would have you believe. We hold our lives loosely because there is a resurrection that awaits us. There is eternal life to come. And in everything that we do, eternity hangs in the balance. We hold our lives loosely, not like the fool who thinks that his zeal impresses God. Why? Because Jesus' death on the cross assures us that there's nothing we could ever do to earn eternal life. There's no zeal that I could possibly muster for which God would say, wow, I'm really impressed. Moses failed to do it. Abraham failed to do it. David failed to do it. Solomon failed to do it. But you, you fascinate me. You're special. You're the special special. His death on the cross assures us, I can't earn it. He had to die in my place. I was a dead man. There's no zeal that can overcome that. His actual, physical, bodily resurrection 2,000 years ago is proof also that he earned all the rewards of eternal life. The grave could not hold him. So he got up. It also proves to us that His words can be trusted and followed. So we hold our lives loosely because we follow Him who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. They hold their lives loosely because they're following the King who is the physical embodiment of humility. They hold their lives loosely because in that humility, they truly count others more significant than themselves. See, following Christ is holding your life loosely, not for the reason of a hedonist, not for the reason of the zealot, but in following after Christ, they're actually genuinely concerned for your interests. There is Timothy and Epaphroditus, right in the center of it. They hold their lives loosely because their eternity is secure. They have nothing to lose now. And it's strictly due to the grace and mercy of God. And more than anything, they want you to have what they have. I've used the expression from time to time. It's a quote, uh, age-old quote, by several different people. That the gospel is really one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. Their concern for you is that you would find bread because they found it strictly due to the grace and mercy of God. He came to them and gave them bread in Christ's resurrection. And they want you to experience the same joy and freedom that can be found in Christ. So here are two men who are really quite different in their mission. One is a preacher of the word and the other is a servant. One has gone to and will go to church after church ensuring that sound doctrine is being taught. The other is given a task of service to Paul and to deliver some gifts, and he nearly died because of it. But Paul is sending them both to the church at Philippi, and he's commending both of these men to the Philippians. And he's doing so for the commonality that lies between the two of them. Both of them are serving the work of Christ above their own self-interest. And by putting the work of Christ above their own self-interest, they're serving the interests of others above themselves. Paul is commending them to the church to emulate them. Put your eyes on them. Walk as they walk. And if you do, you not only will be Christ-centered in your approach, but your emulation of them will cause you to put others' needs ahead of your own. So perhaps you've been caught in the rat race of life. And you've lived day to day. You've lived for your own pleasure. And you've not really considered what the resurrection of Jesus has to do with you. Maybe you would even say, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. But the impact of the resurrection has not actually hit you. The impact of the resurrection has really not changed any, anything about the way that you live your life. I want to challenge you. See, the resurrection is not merely a good story. People don't die for good stories. 
It's not merely a historical fact, though it is that. It's an event that changes everything we thought we knew about the life that we're living. You realize that? Everybody dies. That guy got up. You can just stop and think about that for a second. Everyone in here is a dead person. He got up. Never to die again. It's worth pausing for just a second to think about how that happened. If someone invented some, I don't know, invention, and they said, this conquers death, and it cost $1,500, you'd sell anything to get it. But here's Jesus saying, it's free. What would you give to attain it? It tells us that there's life after death. But not only that there's life after death, that this man, Jesus, is the king of it. It tells us that our lives are to be lived in service to him and to his kingdom. Because we're all going to face a reckoning one day. But you know what it also tells us? It tells us that he loves us so much so that he gave himself for us. That he faced the wrath of God for me so that I don't have to. It's an event that changes everything about the way we live our lives. It tells us that we can confess our sins and He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It means that all of those who call you and invite you to church and remind you of what the Bible says and confront you in your sin and don't just let you vent but actually tell you where your sin lies in the, in the process they're really God's act of grace and mercy to you. They're living their life in service to you. The question is, who are you going to emulate? Who's in your ear? Who is the one that you're following and listening to? Who is the one that has the greatest amount of influence in your life? Who do you surround yourself with? Who are you looking to? And Christian, which person are you going to be? What are you going to be like if your life is truly going to be Christ-centered? Are you testifying to the resurrection by the way you live your life? Are you the kind of Christian whom others want to emulate? When people look at you, are they seeing evidence of the resurrection? Are you constantly worried about news events that are around you? How does that testify to the resurrection of Christ? How does that testify to the fearlessness with which we should live our lives? Are they seeing your life as being one of self-sacrifice? Are they seeing you counting others' needs as more important than your own? The challenge is to us 
to not only be those kinds of people that others want to emulate in order to follow Christ, but it's also to surround ourselves with people whose fire for the kingdom we want to catch. To shut out the people who gossip and slander, remind them of their sin and move on and surround ourselves with people whose desire is for the kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my prayer is simple. Would you allow us to catch the fire of the kingdom? Would you give us an understanding of the resurrection that causes us to change the way we live our lives? Would you empower us to live for your glory? Would you help us to truly grasp it? And would you cause us to rejoice in the people that, we, that are surrounding us, that are reminding us of the gospel, that continually point us to Jesus? Will you fill our lives with those people that confront us in our sin, that love us and care for us enough to be honest with us? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.